Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn to Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3. Last week, we saw that between chapters 2 and 3, Matthew jumps forward 30 years from Jesus' childhood to the ministry of John the Baptist. John is found in the wilderness preaching the gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we talked about the fact that the kingdom of heaven is the reign and rule of God. John's message is that the king is here. And since all people everywhere have rebelled against the king, the coming of the king also demands repentance, turning, and allegiance To him. And so all the people of Israel are coming to John in the wilderness, confessing their sins and being baptized by him in the Jordan River as a sign of their repentance. But Matthew ends the passage with John making a very clear statement about his ministry and the limits on his ministry. He says in Matthew 3:11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And in the passage we come to today, we see the one who comes after John, the one who is mightier than him, the king who he came to prepare the way for, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the eternal Son of God, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the king who has come to bring his kingdom. But just like Jesus does so often in this gospel and so often in our lives, he does not fit our expectations. He doesn't do what John the Baptist or we would expect him to do as the divine king. Instead, he pulls back the veil on our eyes and shows us what he has come to do and how he is going to do it. But before we see that in God's word, let's ask that he would open our eyes to see clearly. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and illumination, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word, see your glory in it, and receive the comfort that can only come from you. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. 
As we look at these five verses today, we're going to see three things, and it's in an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. First, we're going to ask a question. Why is Jesus baptized? And then as we look at his baptism, we're going to see two things that his baptism reveals to us. First, the identity of Jesus recalibrates our understanding of the identity of God himself. And then second, we're going to see that the mission of Jesus is a Trinitarian mission. So that's where we're headed. But first, we need to ask the question that John asks. Why is Jesus baptized? Last week, we looked at John showing up in the wilderness of Judea and baptizing people. And the thing I said that we especially needed to pay attention to is baptism's connection to repentance. Verses 5 and 6 in chapter 3 say, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so John's baptism was a symbol of a person recognizing that they were sinful, that they needed cleansing and forgiveness. This is true of Christian baptism too. Remember, Peter preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and when the people ask how they should respond, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we saw last week, John says that his baptism is different than the baptism that Jesus will bring, which is Christian baptism. John's baptism is a mere symbol of water, but Christian baptism is with the Holy Spirit and fire. Not just symbol, but effect. But they do have this in common, that both John's baptism and Christian baptism are a confession of sin. They are an acknowledgement of sin. They are a sign of repentance, turning from our sin and turning back to God. This is the message that John the Baptist came to bring. The long-expected king is finally here from God. So it is time to confess your sins, to turn away from your rebellion, to repent of your idolatry, and to worship and serve the one true God. And his baptism was a symbol of that repenting of sin, that turning and humbling ourselves before God. So what in the world is Jesus doing getting baptized? Why is he doing this? Verse 13 makes it clear that that's what his intention is. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And we see John protesting. Verse 14 says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John objects to Jesus coming for baptism. There are two reasons for John's objection to Jesus. First, we just saw baptism is an admission of sin. These people were coming to John confessing their sins. It was a sign of repentance, turning away of your sin. But Jesus doesn't have any sin to turn away from. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming from afar and he yells out, Behold! the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man 
who ranks before me because he was before me. He knows that Jesus doesn't have any sin to confess. The rest of the Bible is 100% clear on this, that Jesus has no sin. Jesus is the one who is sinned against, not the one who does the sinning. So John objects that Jesus shouldn't be taking on this sign of confessing sin. But there's another reason that John objects to Jesus being baptized. And it's because baptism was also a sign of humility or of submission. It's an an admission of wrong, of sin, but because it's a sign of repentance, it's also a sign of renewed obedience. The person being baptized is submitting to an authority outside of himself or herself. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that in Christian baptism, we enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. We are humbling ourselves before him, submitting to the Lord. John has just said in verse 11 that Jesus was mightier, stronger than he was. So much so that John isn't even worthy to carry his sandals, which would have been the job of a low servant. John knows that his calling was to be the forerunner of the divine king who would establish his kingdom with all authority and rule and reign over his people. And the king walks up to John and puts on a symbol, not of authority and exaltation and power, but of humility and submission. What is Jesus doing? Why is the sinless and perfect king over all the world putting on a symbol of humility and admission of sin? This is the first of what I will call pious objections against Jesus in the gospel. I call it a pious objection because it's rooted in something that is right and true. John knows that Jesus is the king and that Jesus is sinless, but his objection exposes the fact that he has expectations for Jesus, for the Messiah, for what God should do when he comes into the world. And those expectations are wrong. John the Baptist actually does this again in Matthew chapter 11. John is in prison at that point because he has spoken out against Herod's son. Herod's son has taken his brother's wife and John has spoken out against him and is put in prison. And in prison, John sends messengers to Jesus and says, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to look for another? John thought that Jesus' kingdom was coming. And he expected that that meant that prophets wouldn't end up in prison. The Apostle Peter also has one of these pious objections. In John 13, Jesus takes a towel and he stoops down to wash his disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter and Peter says, You shall never wash my feet. Peter knew that Jesus was God himself, and in Peter's mind, it isn't fitting for God to wash the feet of a weak sinner. Peter does this again in Matthew 16. Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus tells the disciples what that means about what he is going to do. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It doesn't make sense, Peter says, for the king to finally come, for God to dwell with his people, and then to die. These are all pious objections. People who knew something true about Jesus' identity, and so they think they know what is fitting for him to do and not to do. How often do you and I have these pious objections to Jesus? If Jesus is good, then faithful people shouldn't get terminal diseases. If Jesus really loves the world, then he shouldn't send anyone to hell. If Jesus really is in control, then the world shouldn't be filled with so much hatred and violence and suffering. If following Jesus is right, then life shouldn't be this hard. We are convinced, like John and like Peter, that because we know Jesus' identity, we also know what that should mean for his mission for how he acts in the world. But look with me at verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, that's John, consented. Despite John's objections, Jesus says it is fitting for him to be baptized. It is fitting for the sinless, spotless Son of God to take on the symbol of repentance of sin. It is fitting for the eternal divine King to take on the symbol of humility and submission. It is fitting for this, he says, will fulfill all righteousness. Jesus means at least two things by this phrase, that it will fulfill all righteousness. First, the sinless Man, who is God in the flesh, is baptized to identify with the people whom he came to save. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at this idea of fulfillment in Matthew. Jesus has come to succeed where God's people, Israel, have failed. He has come to endure where Israel gave in. Jesus has come to take the identity of God's people on himself. And this shows us that he won't just forgive their sins, he will take their sins upon himself. Our assurance of pardon from Isaiah 53 today says exactly this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul says this when he looks back on the life of Jesus. This is what theologians call the great exchange 
of the gospel found in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus has come to take the sins of his people upon himself. And he begins right here by taking the symbol of repentance of sin in baptism. There's another way, though, that Jesus fulfills all righteousness in his baptism. Righteousness, most basically, means something that is in accordance with God's will. Something that is in accordance with God's will. And so when Jesus says that his baptism fulfills all righteousness... He is saying something about his work on earth, his ministry, his mission. John tried to prevent Jesus from getting baptized. That's not what the king should do. Peter tells Jesus that it isn't fitting for the Messiah to die. Peter rebuked him. Do you remember how Jesus responded to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, but then he tells him why. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Our objections to how Jesus acts so often are because we use our worldly and earthly reasoning instead of a heavenly one. Jesus is setting his mind on the things of God. His mission will not be a mission that conforms to the expectations of the world or even of his people. His mission will be exactly what God planned for it to be. It will be in perfect conformity with God's will. It will fulfill all righteousness according to God's intentions and not according to our intentions. And that takes us right up to the event of Jesus' baptism. John gives his objection, and Jesus insists upon being baptized, so John consents. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The event of Jesus' baptism tells us two extremely important things that will be a lens for us as we continue to see Jesus' mission throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It tells us something about the identity of God himself And it also tells us something about the mission of God in Jesus' ministry. First, it tells us the identity of Jesus recalibrates our understanding of the identity of God himself. We've already talked about this all through this book. This gospel is about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? It reaches its climax in chapter 16 when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, but who do you Say that I am. And already it's been made clear that Jesus is the long-awaited son of David who will be king over an eternal kingdom. He's the offspring of Abraham who will be a blessing to the nations. Jesus is the Messiah 
the anointed one of God who has come to save his people from their sins. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of his mother Mary, so he is the Son of God himself. John the Baptist has already told us this, that he has come to prepare the way for the Lord, for Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus is that God. He is the God who created all things, the God who saved Israel from slavery in Egypt with signs and wonders and brought them into the promised land. He is the God whom Isaiah saw sitting on a throne in heaven who is holy, holy, holy. This is who Jesus is. But Matthew tells us more. The coming of Jesus into the world lays bare a complexity in God, a mystery that has been present but hidden since the very beginning. Our God is not a singular, solitary God. He is a triune God. There is only one God. Isaiah 45 puts it starkly. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The Shema, which was the confession of faith of God's Old Testament people in Deuteronomy 6, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Matthew has already made plain that Jesus is God. In Jesus' baptism, the heavens are opened up. The veil of earthly realities is pulled back for us, and we see the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus who is the Son of God. At the same time, we hear the Father's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We won't see that kind of clarity again in the Gospel of Matthew until the final verses, when we are told that Christian baptism is to be done in the name, singular, of God. What is the name of the one God in Matthew 28? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching on this by asking, are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. And then it asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Trinity is not some trick that God plays on us where He calls Himself Father some of the time and Son other times and Spirit at other times. Right here we get all three persons showing up at once, distinct from one another, yet one God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three aspects of God or three parts of God or three different gods, as if there is a species called God, and here we see three of them. No, there is but one God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Matthew reveals that our one God whom we worship and serve has eternally existed as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. This is the identity 
of our God. And as we come to this particular text, if you want to study the Trinity further, it just so happens that in the School of Theology, we're studying the doctrine of the Trinity today. So you are welcome to come to that at 3 o'clock this afternoon. But right here, we need to ask the question, why? Why is Matthew telling us this right now? Why has God chosen this moment at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he takes on this symbol of repentance of sin and humility? Why has he chosen us, chosen now to reveal himself as triune? The revelation of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism reveals to us that the mission of Jesus is a Trinitarian mission. You might sometimes have heard people talk about the work of the Trinity in different ages or epochs. The Father had his time in creation and the Old Testament. And then the Son comes in the person of Jesus in the Gospels. And then he leaves and the Spirit comes for his age, the age of the church that we are in right now. And what Matthew shows to us here is that these verses correct that misunderstanding of God's working. The Father isn't sitting back relaxing now that Jesus has taken center stage. The Spirit isn't waiting His turn with anticipation to show up after Jesus is done with His work. No, all three members of the Trinity are always working. All the actions of God are the undivided actions of the triune God. We've already seen this in Matthew. We've seen the Holy Spirit working in the conception of Jesus in his mother Mary. We've already seen the Father sending his angels to protect Jesus from the devilish schemes of Herod. We will continue to see the Father at work, providentially directing and caring for Jesus, answering his prayers. We'll continue to see the Holy Spirit directing and empowering Jesus in his earthly ministry. The work of redemption is not the work of the Son alone. The work of redemption is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the work done by the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And we see that especially on display in Jesus' baptism. Verse 16 says, He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This fulfills the word that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. He needed everything that a human being needs in this life, and so he needed the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God to bear fruit in him. He needed the wisdom and understanding that only comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus as a human was anointed by the Holy Spirit for strength and endurance, and perseverance throughout his mission. And then in verse 17, we hear the voice of the Father from heaven. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The beginning of this statement comes from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm about 
all of those who scheme and plan and plot against God and against His anointed King. And the Lord in Psalm 2 looks on His anointed King under distress and says, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord declares victory and authority to his anointed king. But the second half of the father's statement is not from Psalm 2. It's from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 is one of the servant songs of Isaiah where he tells about the coming Messiah, the one who would rescue God's people. And he begins by saying that his pleasure, his delight, will be in the servant. The delight of the Lord will be in this servant. Listen to the whole statement. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the character of the mission of Jesus. He is not simply a king who will wield authority and exact justice. He is a humble king whose authority and justice will be wedded with compassion and gentleness. He will break the bonds of his enemies, and yet a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will go forth in the power and strength of the Spirit of the Lord, and yet the Holy Spirit descends on him as a gentle and innocent dove. He will take on the sins of his people and will be despised and rejected. And yet he knows from the outset and all along the way that he is the beloved son of his father, in whom he is well pleased. This is the mission of the triune God, the mission of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a mission to save his people from their sins. A mission to bring repentance to a rebellious and disobedient people. A mission to establish his kingdom. A mission to seek and save the lost. And as we look upon this heavenly scene in Jesus' baptism where the veil has been lifted, we see our own salvation. We see that the eternal and all-powerful God has made himself low. So he can say to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We also see in this heavenly scene what we will become when we come to Jesus. The Christian life is not just beholding the life of the Trinity in an incredible and mysterious way. It is entering into the fellowship of the triune God. We in our baptism are joined, united to Jesus. We in our baptism are called beloved sons and daughters 
of our Father God. We in our baptism have the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of cleansing and of power poured out upon us. The mission of the triune God is to take ruined sinners like you and me, stuck in our sin and alienated from God, and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and bring us into the loving fellowship of our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. Would you all pray with me? Father, as we behold your glory, the glory of you and your Son and your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to take away the veil from our eyes, that we would behold your glory and that we would be drawn to you, that we would see our sin for the thief of joy that it is, and that we would see the only true joy, the only true love, in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we would run to you. Do that in our hearts both now and throughout this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.